Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. He's embraced everything that they've needed from him. He recognizes that this is an opportunity for him. He's won every individual honor you can win, MVP awards, all-star games, all-NBA squad, scoring titles. The only thing missing is a championship. so great that you have checked out the podcast. I have an awesome guest right around the corner. want to give you a couple of notes. Uh, my next show on Tuesday, my guest is going to be former NBA coach, former Kings coach, George Carl. That's right. George Carl is going to join me next week on Tuesday's edition. If you don't like that, don't forget to check out my video rants. Over on YouTube, same title, if you don't like that, with Grant Napier. And for those of you particularly listening via Apple Podcasts, it would mean a lot to me if you would uh, rate the podcast and leave a comment. That would be great. Thank you very much. Today's show is brought to you by Roy's Umbrella. For all of your home loan needs, just go to Roy's Umbrella. Trust me, you can count on Roy's Umbrella for a very low rate on your home loan. There are no tricks There's no nonsense. There's no extra chargers at the end. And Roy, he has been unbelievably loyal to me. He will treat you like family. He's awesome. Just go to Roy'sUmbrella.com for all of your home loan needs. That's Roy'sUmbrella.com. My guest today has been a longtime network sportscaster. You see him on CBS, the number two team of the NFL with Charles Davis. He also does college basketball on CBS. He is the TV voice of the Brooklyn Nets, also does the NBA on TNT. And with the fact that I see his son, Noah Eagle, everywhere now, I think I'm just <laughs> going to introduce my guest as the father of Noah Eagle, Ian. Is that all right if oh. I introduce you that way? Grant, that, that would make me the happiest person on earth. Absolutely. If that's my moniker from here on out, <laughs> I'm cool with it. As you know, with your boys, whatever they accomplish makes you so proud. Yes. And whatever you accomplish pales in comparison. Boy, you hit that right on the head. It was so funny. A couple of years ago when you all did that spoof before, I think it was uh, Miami College basketball and he was doing yeah. the game and he interviewed you and I got a kick when he said, now, wait a minute. Is it is it Ian? Is it Jan? It was, and, and, and the reason why I bring that up is I, I was thinking about after he asked you that. How many times in your life people have mispronounced your first name? It's got to be unbelievable. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would say if it's not every day, it's close <laughs> to every day. So at some point, either as a kid or in adulthood, you make a decision of the time and place where you're going to correct somebody. And I think as a kid, when you're trying to figure out your identity and, and where you fit in and you're, you're seeing where, where the lines are and the boundaries are in a classroom and what have you, I probably pushed it more at that point than I do in adulthood. And I would correct any teacher, any other student. I would quickly, if they said, Hey, Ian, how you doing? I'm like, it's Ian. <laughs> and that became, right. I said two words for like 11 years of my life. It's Ian. It's Ian. It's Ian. <laughs> oh and then gosh. you hit adulthood and you realize, okay, uh, let's, let's ease up here, buddy. It's not, it's not that someone has an issue with you personally. It's that they're accustomed to saying Ian and your parents decided they were going to be different and named you Ian. So I'd come up with <laughs> funny ways, self-deprecating ways to describe sure. it. And then oftentimes I would just take the hit, you know, depending upon <laughs> the situation. If you're right. picking up food and they're calling out, Ian, Ian, are you going to run up? It's Ian, sir. <laughs> no, you're not going to do that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, I know you're a New York kid, but I did not realize this uh, because my dad went to Forest Hills High School and that's where you went to high school. How yes, about indeed. that? Yes. How about that? Well, a lot of famous alums. Yes. Forest Hills High School. You got Simon and Garfunkel. You have the great Ernie Grunfeld, yes. as we know. Kenny Patterson, who was a standout at DePaul. And then there's some others that might surprise you. Dick Stockton, who was Dick Stuckvis, is a Forest Hills High School grad. How about that? I was not aware of that. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. And there were rumors that Michael Landon went there. I, I don't. I don't know if I buy that. And I'll throw out a name that you will know, but many of your listeners to the podcast may not. They'll have to Google it, but Rona Barrett. Mm. How about yes. that? Wow. Yes. The the queen yeah. in New York of all the scuttlebutt yeah. behind the scenes with celebrities. Mm. Uh, she also attended Forest Hills High School. Who did you idolize? Who were your favorite announcers growing up in New York? It was always Marv. Yeah, I, I assume you were in a similar boat just based on Amen. his responsibilities at the time. He was doing everything. So if you were a fan of basketball, if you were a fan of hockey, if you were a fan of baseball, because he was working the pregame on, on the Major League Baseball Game of the Week, if you were a fan of football, he was doing games on NBC, if you were a fan of boxing, if you were watching the local news, you name it. He was doing it. So it, it really started with him. I was born in 1969. You do the math in the 70s. He started to become an even more prominent figure in the 80s. He became a network figure. And everything that I dreamed of, of being in sportscasting really was based on him and the jobs, the multiple jobs that he was doing. I, I remember vividly uh, coming down to eat breakfast in my house. And my mom or my dad would be downstairs and they'd say, oh, you know, what do you want for breakfast? And I would do a Marv impression. I'll have two eggs over <laughs> hard bacon, lightly crispy and toast with orange juice. And, you know, after a while, they, right. they start thinking there might be something wrong with me. Like they, they think I need help. They say, oh, yeah, you like Marv Albert? I was like, yeah, yeah, I like Marv Albert. So you want to be like Marv Albert? I said, no, 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 I want to be. Marv Albert. I said, well, maybe we need to seek a professional opinion. Mm -hmm. 
I'll tell you, my story is very similar. Uh, I'm 10 years older than you, but uh, I grew up listening to Marv do the Knicks and Rangers so much so that I used to record the Ranger and Nick games, cut up some highlights and bring them in the homeroom in junior high school. And Tremendous. we would listen to them before the first period. And in junior high school, whenever we had a class assembly and the assembly ran short, you could not leave until the bell rang. Well, everyone in junior high school would start chanting my name and everyone, Grant, Grant, Grant. And I would, I would have to go up on the stage and do a mock play-by-play of the Knicks and the Rangers. And I had commercials because, you know, Marv did so many live reads, you know, brought to you by the F&M Brewers of Schaefer Beer, the one beer to have when you're having more than one. By Ford, when America needs a better idea, Ford puts it on wheels. Like I had, I had, you know, Eastern Airlines out of freaking business, half the thing. And then on, when I was a uh, freshman uh, getting ready to play high school football, actually was a sophomore, we went to Pennsylvania for five days of camp and the seniors got me to the back of the bus and I had to announce an entire Knicks Lakers game from the 69 70 championship season for two hours on the ride from Long Island to Pennsylvania with commercials the whole thing literally I did the first second I did the third quarter the fourth quarter I did the whole damn thing so and I would say this Ian and I mean this if I had not grown up listening to Marv Albert I honestly do not believe I would have chosen this as a profession. Yeah, I buy it. And the the stories are so similar and the impact that he had on so many young people at that point. And you can go right down the list of New York sportscasters that are all in that same age range of you and me, uh, that 10 year range where he was such a dominant force. And everything you just stated, I did in some other form. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the dates are a little different. And yeah, I was on the back of a bus going to day camp or we were playing pickup basketball. And I was calling it as we were playing, which is pretty annoying for the other kids. <laughs> like, right. At some point, they're like, hey, dude, shut up. <laughs> Enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm the foul. Like nobody wants to hear that over and over again, especially when you call your own foul. So you're a hundred percent on it. And I, I think now it's hard to even imagine because the sports casting industry is attainable. I think young people see it as a job that is something that they can do at that time. And I'm sure your, your parents, my parents initially, the first question was, you want to do what? Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Why would you do that? That's not a real career. And things have changed, and it really has become big part of Americana. But in New York, it, it was all Marv, and I don't know who would even be considered a close second. Around what age were you when you started thinking about maybe? Gee, I want to do what Marv does. I was eight. I was eight years old, and it, it's not a stretch. I asked my parents about it. I told them about it. My parents were entertainers. My dad was a stand-up comedian and a trumpet player and an actor. My mom was a singer and an actress. So looking outside the box was not a big deal to them. I was eight and told them that this is what I wanted to do and asked them about the profession. And both of them separately said, well, that's what you'll do. And that's incredibly empowering when you're a kid. Because at at eight, whatever your parents tell you, you see as gospel. 
So I convinced myself, even at that young an age, well, oh, I guess that's what I'll do. My parents told me this is what I'm going to do. And I just had a lot of confidence that I would one day do it. I didn't have an outlet in which to do it. There were no high school radio stations. I wasn't going to a sports casting camp. Over the summer, I was leading the normal life of any kid in, in New York City at that time in the 70s and 80s. But in the back of my mind, I didn't say it out loud. I didn't have to tell everybody. I just knew that I would do this. Uh, I ended up attending Syracuse. I was interested in the school based on the alumni and based on the college radio station. And lo and behold, <laughs> I showed up at school thinking I had a lot of talent and then finally got a chance to actually put it to use and figured out some ways in which I, I might be able to, to make a career out of this. What is it about Syracuse that turns out so many great announcers? You said, you know, campus station. All colleges have campus stations. What is it about the curriculum? What is it about getting experience at Syracuse where they are so renowned for turning out network announcers? What's the secret up there? Yeah, I think a big part of it is the fact that they have students that show up there that have an aptitude for it and already have in their minds that this is something that they want to pursue. So even going back to the 80s, my freshman year was 1986, and I showed up and it was highly competitive. There were a lot of really good broadcasters already on campus. You get into the system there and it's a cast system. You have to wait your turn and nothing is handed to you. And you do get a little taste of what life could be like post-graduation. If you're not good enough, you find out in a hurry. And there is a survival of the fittest mentality. And that has continued through the years, right up and through my son attending Syracuse just a few years ago. And many of the same tenants that were in place when I showed up were still in place when he showed up uh, nearly 30 years later. So yeah, it's, it's pretty wild to, to think that they keep pumping out great broadcaster after great broadcaster. I do think the curriculum is very good. I think the college radio station is outstanding, and that's probably played a larger role. When you look back at your career, whether it was before Syracuse, during Syracuse, or right after graduation, was there one thing you look back on that say, man, that just absolutely changed my career path? Did you have that one big break, or were it a series of things for you? Yeah, I had a series of things, Grant. I, I got a job at WFAN Radio behind the scenes uh, when I graduated, and I wanted to be on the air. I had two offers, one in Buffalo, one in West Virginia, that would have put me on the air, but I elected to go back to FAN where I had interned and was told in no uncertain terms, do not take this job if you want to be on the air. Wow. And I took the job anyway, thinking to myself, well, let me get in there. Let me get a sense of the working environment by osmosis. I'll just take everything in. I'll be a sponge. And also, let me gain their trust. My thought, even at a young age, was why am I going to go to a different market and try to work on my tape and then hope to one day get back to WFAN radio? Let me just go to WFAN radio and figure it out as I go. So I took the job May of 1990. I got on the air in an update role in September of 1991 as a fill-in, and I did a good job. They put me on the air the next week. They put me on the air the next week. Steve Levy and I hosted a five-hour NFL Super Bowl pregame show in early 1992. It was Buffalo and Washington, 
that was my first chance of, of doing a show. And then Jody McDonald, longtime host, left to go to Philadelphia. I took over his weekend overnight spot in 1992. I was working with Mike and the Mad Dog behind the scenes and doing that job on the weekend. So I was working seven days a week. By 1993, I was put on the air full time. And in 1994, Howard David, who was the voice of the sure. Nets, yeah. ended up leaving the Nets job. Phil Mushnick had a small item in his column stating that Howard David would not be returning for the 1994-95 season. I reached out to the Nets. I had two contacts that could at least get me in the door. One was Russ Salzberg, longtime sports anchor, who I was doing shows with, co-hosting with at times at FAN. And I knew he covered the Nets on a regular basis. And Don Sperling, longtime NBA entertainment executive, who's now with the New York Giants. I had befriended him doing some voiceovers at the NBA. And I just called each of them and said, hey, look, I have no idea if this job is really open. Is there any way you can find out more information? Both called on my behalf, called me back, said, uh, Amy Shear from the Nets, director of broadcasting, is willing to listen to your tape. you got to go drop it off today. And I grabbed a tape. It was from college. It was a Syracuse Seton Hall game. I had done no play-by-play since that point. I dropped it off. I met her in the lobby. She took the tape. She said, all right, yeah, we'll be in touch. She calls me the next day. She says, uh, I am. We liked what we heard, me and my boss, Jim Lamparello. Uh, do you have some more recent material? And I said, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, need, you need more recent material. Yeah, yeah, more recent. I said, when, when would you need that? By? She goes, well, tomorrow. I said, yeah, said, yeah, absolutely. We'll get that done for you. I'll drop it off tomorrow. I had no recent material. So I ended up going into NBA entertainment in Secaucus, New Jersey. And I asked a couple of guys there if I could call the game off of a monitor with a microphone and you put in crowd noise after the fact. They said, yeah, I, th- I think we can make that happen. I called a Nick Net playoff game from 1994. First half of the game, it was Chuck Daly's last year as the head coach of the Nets. And I called it into a microphone. They recorded it. They added fake crowd noise, which is ironic because that's where we are in 2021. <laughs> sure. These NBA games are airing with fake crowd noise. That's what they did in 1994. I dropped the tape off. Amy Shear calls me the next day, Grant. She says, our team president, John Spolstra, would like to meet with you. I said, great. Uh, when? She said, Monday. I said, okay, great. I go in for the meeting. I asked Amy, I just figured one out. I'll just ask. I said, how many people are up for this job? She said, it's down to you and one other guy. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, this has been three days. It all happened within three days. And it's down to me and, and one other guy. And I go in for the interview. And I just felt from the beginning that I had nothing to lose. I, I, I don't know why I felt so confident. I sit down with John Spolstra, the dad of Eric Spolstra. He was the president of the Nets. And we hit it off. We're 10, 15 minutes in. Uh, I have him laughing at, at some of my jokes and we're connecting. He's an outside the box thinker. And right at the end of the interview, I, I took a calculated risk and I said to him, I said, look, I I really believe I'm going to be successful at this. I said, if you hire me, 
you will always be the person that gave me my first big break. Wow. And he had a wry smile on his face. And that could have gone one of two ways. Either either he looks at me and says, you cocky SOB. Mm-hmm. Or he reacts the way that he reacted, which was how it was intended, to be perfectly honest. And I ended up getting the job. I got a call a few days later. My wife and I, it was our one-year anniversary. We went to San Francisco to celebrate our one-year anniversary. And I had to check the answering machine at my apartment in Manhattan. <laughs> and there was a message from Amy Shear saying to call her. I called her and, and I got the job. So that, that probably That's was, fascinating. That was the one big break, Grant, that I look back on and say, that set a course because it changed my career. I was definitely on the talk show lane of this is my future. I was at FAN. I was uh, a five tool guy wherever they needed me. And that was probably going to be the next chapter of my career. This changed all that and, and set me on a different course. That's a fascinating story. Let's fast forward to this year. As you know, uh, Charles Davis, I idolize, uh, I consider him a dear friend. I just love him. I love everything he stands for. And I know how long of a relationship you had on the air with Dan Fouts, and I know it was very difficult. And due to the pandemic and the fact that basically everything was done over Zoom and everything else, was it more challenging than under normal circumstances to bring in a new partner for this season? Yeah, normally I would say absolutely more challenging. But this was not normal because Charles is not normal. Uh, Charles is such an effervescent person. And he was so excited about it. And it was permeating through him. You could tell from the moment that we spoke that he was going to attack this thing and do everything in his power to be successful. And also my point of view, Evan Washburn, our sideline reporter point of view was, well, let's do whatever we can to get to know each other. So we ended up doing a Zoom every week for five months, literally every week we did it for, we didn't pay for Zoom. So it was that 30 minute free version (laughs) and it was timed out. And in a way it it actually ended up being better because we kind of knew the clock was on. And we spent this time together every single week. And as the weeks went on and they started adding up, we really did get to know each other. And the football conversation was very limited. We probably talked 20% football, 80% life and family and background and upbringing and parents and school and experiences. So when we finally showed up together in September and we're separated by plexiglass and we're not allowed to take the same car to the stadium, all of these provisions were in place in the protocols. It just felt like we had known each other for five years. We dealt with all those things that you would have dealt with in person over the first six or seven weeks of the season. And it was already out of the way. Inside jokes had already formed and a real sense of of commonality had formed. It's crazy to think about it now, uh, but then doing the the 18 weeks with him, including the playoff game, it, it hit me that we just looked at this as a different kind of season. We acted appropriately in trying to figure out ways to bond. 
and it really did pay off on the air. When we got on the air for Cleveland, Baltimore week one, it felt like we had already worked together for a ton of games. It, it was, it was really a, a pleasant surprise given all of the challenges that were in place. Announcing games in empty stadiums. We, the viewer, we, we, we have a different sense as we're watching. We have a different perspective. But for yeah. you with headphones on in a broadcast booth in an empty stadium that holds 70, 75,000 and nobody's there, did that affect it all the way you called the game? Yeah, it did. And Grant, I know you can appreciate and you can absolutely relate to it. When someone checks in after a game you've done and you get a text, for me, uh, I, I always look at it as a positive. Somebody tuned in and they're chiming in and it's wonderful. And in this particular case, I didn't want to ruin what was a comfortable experience. So when I started getting texts from people that first NFL game or when I was in the bubble doing NBA games and like, oh, wow, looks great, sounds great. I didn't have the heart to tell them that it's not that great in person. Mm -hmm. It's very odd. It's very surreal. And I think the, the crowd noise played a big role in that and making people feel okay with it because their senses were still reacting in the same way. It looked like the NBA. It sounded like the NBA. It felt like the NBA. But when you were there, it was anything but. It, 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 didn't, it didn't feel like any of those things. You adjust and you realize a couple games in, like, okay, this is it. This is, this is how it's going to be. NFL. That first game, there was no preseason. Cleveland, Baltimore, we're in Baltimore. Normally, the way that the press box is set up there, you are right in the thick of it. The fans are so close to you that you could touch them. So that's a, a really extreme example of it being so diametrically opposite to what you're accustomed to. There was nobody there. Nobody. No fans. So the game starts, and I don't know how it's going to go with the crowd noise in my head. Normally, I wouldn't ask the audio person for effects into my headset. Uh, you have done games for so many years. Everybody's a little different. Mm -hmm. And when you go on the road, sometimes you don't know. The audio guy has a different idea of what the mix should sound like. So I try to remain consistent and not have effects in my headset. I told the audio guy for, for game one, a longtime audio person at CBS, I said, hey, you got to give me something. You got to give me some of that sweetener that you're putting out to the audience because I've got to have a sense of some kind of background. So he does. And we're about five minutes into the game. And I hear in my headsets, someone scream, let's go. <laughs> and I start looking around the stadium. I'm like, who was that? <laughs> and there's one usher that's standing. I'm like, I don't think he did it. So I move on. I continue with the call. About 12 minutes later, I hear, let's go. <laughs> and I realize, Grant, it's on a loop. We're doing the Truman Show. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's, it's a fan that they had recorded from a previous Raven game. Wow. And every 12 minutes, the let's go guy pops up in my headset. And that was a trend that I did notice from stadium to stadium. Sometimes it was more obvious than others, 
but that was bizarre, mm. very surreal when the season started. As mentioned, you also are the TV announcer for the Brooklyn Nets. Kevin Durant right now with a hamstring issue, so he's out of action. But I was talking with Jerry Reynolds earlier this week about James Harden, and he told me that he's seeing a a new James Harden, a different James Harden that he's ever seen before. What do you see with yeah. Harden on the Nets? Yeah, so first, uh, when when he was pushing for the deal, I didn't know if it was really going to happen. I knew the Nets were were – Seriously interested, but I didn't know if they were going to be able to to swing it. They eventually get the deal done. I was driving in to Barclays Center for a game that night, and my phone starts exploding. I text after text after text after text. And my phone at the time, I was like at the bitter end, you know, when you push it a little far, they keep telling you it's time to upgrade your phone, upgrade your phone. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'll upgrade the, my phone on my terms. I'm not, I'm not doing it when you tell me to do it. When I believe that I've exhausted everything this phone has to offer, that's when I'll upgrade. And that, that day killed my phone. Uh, my, my phone did not recover. I knew at that point that it, it, it was going to have to force me to change. So I ended up getting a new phone a day or two later because of James Harden. That's a different issue. He gets to the team, and I don't know what to expect. And his attitude has been off the charts. He's embraced everything that they've needed from him. He recognizes that this is an opportunity for him. He's won every individual honor you can win, MVP awards, all-star games, all-NBA squads, scoring titles. The only thing missing is a championship. That's it. And he knows it. And when superstars talk to other superstars, what separates them? Financially, they're all set for for their lives. Their families are set for life. It's not money anymore. It's about championships. His basketball IQ is incredible. And his ability to be malleable, whatever they've asked him to do, he's done. You need him to be the distributor, he'll do that. You need him to go down and guard opposing power forwards, he'll do it. You need him to go score on a given night, he'll do it. He's been more than they could have even hoped for. And uh, it it says a lot uh, about him as a player. And as great as he was with Houston, his all-around skills have been on display and, and he's got major pieces around him. He realizes that this has a chance to be really special. And I guess with that said, and I think we use pressure too much in sports. I think we use that word maybe a little bit more than we should. But if you look at Brooklyn and what they gave up to make that deal, anything less than a championship is going to be looked at as a failure, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I I would agree. I mean, look, we have to see how the storyline develops. And if they play a, an epic seven-game series in the NBA Finals and they lose at the buzzer to LeBron James, Life will go on, and I don't know that everyone would walk away saying, oh, see, wasn't going to work out. It's based on how this team develops, the chemistry, defensively, which is certainly an issue right now, but has been a little bit blown out of proportion. I think they're getting better defensively. Even these, these last three or four games, the numbers would tell you, if you're just looking at box scores, you'd say, oh, they, they can't stop anybody. But the circumstances, they were blowing out Indiana by 30-plus points. 
Pacers end up scoring a bunch in the fourth quarter. So window dressing makes it look like they put up a lot of points. They didn't put up a lot of points when it mattered most. Fast forward, same deal with Sacramento. They're blowing them out. Fourth quarter, numbers get a little lopsided. So at the end, you say to yourself, well, they can't keep a team under 120 or 115. I do think there are challenges for them, no doubt. Uh, Their depth got wiped away with the Harden deal. But the star factor is so high and the special qualities that these three guys bring. You know, Kevin Durant, who I ended up calling a bunch of his games when he was at Texas for whatever reason. I had them a lot that year, and I had them in the NCAA tournament. I was blown away by his scoring ability, and I thought his upside was very high. I, I'm not going to begin to pretend that I thought he would be one of the greatest players of all time. I just thought he was a really exceptional talent, and if he could add some muscle is what I thought, then he's going to have a heck of an NBA career. Really hasn't added a whole lot of muscle. He had such thin legs. That's the thing that I was working the games with Jim Spinarkle. And on the layup line, he and I would look, and I just said, look at his ankles. Like, can this guy play 12 years in the NBA? Is that possible? And obviously he's proven that he can't. Kyrie, ridiculously gifted. And I think as the roles have been defined, uh, you're seeing a cohesiveness begin to form with these three guys and the rest of the squad. When you look at your duties currently with network TV and the ability to do Thursday night football on Westwood one and some of the other play by play, just in terms of what you like to do in your passion, how great is that you have the opportunity to do radio? Because I've, I've missed doing radio play by play. It's the reason why I got into this profession But for you to be able to do both, you have the best of both worlds. You are really blessed. But the enjoyment that you get from working the games on Westwood One and being able to do radio, how awesome is that for you? Yeah, you nailed it. You nailed it. Because anyone that got into this field, at least initially, got in because of radio and your youth and the romanticizing of what you thought this career could be. I certainly didn't grow up thinking one day I want to be a TV sports announcer. That's not how I viewed it. Mm -hmm. I just looked at it as being a sportscaster. And the true essence of play-by-play is on the radio. So to enter the field that way, I only did one year of Nets Radio. I got that job in 1994. I ended up getting the TV job the next year. So it's not like I had 10 years of radio experience and got back to my roots. Really, when I ended up getting this Westwood job, it was a continuation is the way that I viewed it. And I just thought I was much more skilled broadcaster all those years later after doing so many different things that I could step in and do the job well. But you had to flip a switch. And, you know, I know you did it for years and and flipping from the radio mentality to TV and not wanting one or the other to suffer. That's how I always looked at the job. I never wanted anyone watching a TV game saying, this guy's a radio guy. What's he doing on TV? And I never wanted anyone listening on a radio game saying, this is clearly a TV guy doing a radio game. You want to be able to put the the square peg in the square hole and the round peg in the round hole. <laughs> uh, that that's the way I've, I've always tried to look at it. And I still look at it that way today, but doing both has 
really been a blessing because it reminds you of, of why you wanted to do this. And radio to me is what it's all about. It's painting that word picture, having a blank canvas and just having a lot of fun. TV is so collaborative and it's very much a team effort. You feel satisfied after a TV broadcast because you know how many people it took to get this thing on the air and you just did a show. It's a show. It, it's it's not just a broadcast. You're doing a show. Radio is much more intimate, and your crew is much smaller, and the responsibility is on you as a play-by-play announcer. It's it's your arena, and it's up to you to do what's necessary for the listeners to understand what's happening in the game. You're the conduit. And there's nobody else. You can't rely on anything else. You've done so many things, including you do tennis, French Open on the Tennis Channel you were talking about. You've done the Masters. You've done a, you've done a lot of phenomenal events. Is there one thing on your wish list that you like, wow, okay, that is something I'm going to really need, desire, want before, <laughs> before it's all said and done? Is there, or, or, or is there another sport that maybe you're like, man, you know what, I think I'd like to try that. Is there anything out there for you? Yeah, you know, I, I had a couple opportunities to, to do baseball, and I ended up not doing it based on some other circumstances, personal circumstances of not having a whole lot of time off, and had a chance to call some Met games many, many years ago. It was the only time my wife has ever said to me, are you serious? <laughs> like you, get, you get two weeks off for the whole year, and you're going you're gonna to call right. 10 Met games? I get, ah, yeah, good point. <laughs> might want to keep the family together, not below <laughs> this thing. Uh, so I've, I've understood that you can't say yes to everything. And occasionally you do have to say no, I guess though, the one event just having been there in Tampa and been around the Super Bowl, I just think as a play by play announcer, it's probably the one event that's considered the pinnacle. And if you get a chance to call one of those, sure. It's select company, and it's funny because I've realized this now as the years have gone on. I think there's always a perception that as you go up the ladder, it must get harder to do the games. And the reality is just the opposite. If you're sitting doing a high school basketball game or a high school football game, and you don't have a whole lot of support, and you don't have the best equipment, and you don't have a whole lot of information, that's challenging to make that broadcast sound entertaining and to be informative. That takes a lot of work. And as you move up, all of those things really fall into place. You have great support. You have more information than you know what to do with. You have terrific people setting up the equipment for you. The equipment is top notch. And as you keep moving up the ladder, that is the trend. So the thought process would be, oh, man, Super Bowl, there would be so much pressure and the amount of work. No, it's the other way. You are set up to succeed. And as you get to the height, other than you know, the stress level that comes with doing a big event and maybe having millions of people watching. But I don't know how you, you felt about that, Grant. Like That never made me nervous. Still to this day doesn't make me nervous. The only thing that makes me nervous is making sure that all the work that I put in during the week 
that I get a chance to to really deliver in the moment. Sure. And if I've learned anything over the years as a young broadcaster, I probably forced a lot of things on the air that didn't belong there because I just wanted to show people that I did all the prep, that I know everything that there is to know about these two teams and about the storylines and the narratives. And in the last 10 years or so, I've realized, hey, look, the audience doesn't know what they don't know. Don't force in stuff that doesn't fit just to satisfy your ego. Use it sparingly. Be smart about it. Be judicious. And do what's best for the viewer, not what's best for you. So I'd like to think all of that knowledge and all of that experience and all those reps in the big moment would put you in a position to succeed. And, you know, if anything, you'd you'd just like to feel that rush at some point. You make a great point about nervousness. I always tell people, whether you're doing a a national radio show or I'm doing a game on TV, you never get a sense of how many people are watching because you're in a booth with three or four other people. Or I said, now, if you were uh, doing the same thing in Central Park, all right, let's say you're doing uh, the NFL playoffs and every single person that's watching is in Central Park and you're on a stage in front of them, then you'd get nervous. (laughs) But when you're doing it, right, when you're in a a booth all by yourself, you don't really, you don't have, you don't have a sense of how many people are watching. That's why I've, I've always never really gotten nervous. But again, if you put me in a room full of people and they're looking at me while I'm talking to them, then I'm going to get nervous. Yeah, it, it's really interesting to put it that way. Uh, I, I think of Hoosiers as an example when Gene Hackman <laughs> walks him in right. to the gym yes. for the championship and they're all nervous and they're all a little bit quiet and he does the measurements and he says, hey, it's the same. It's all the same. Nothing (laughs) changes. So it's the same thing when there's a camera on you, whether the camera is a local camera, a network camera, a regional camera, a microphone in front of you, whether it's uh, a small radio show, a larger radio show, a national radio show. It still comes down to you and it comes down Mm -hmm. to your performance. I I do think I learned a lot as a kid watching my parents. They were on stage, sometimes in front of a thousand people or twelve hundred people and you know, Grant, they would bring me up at the end of their act for about a year when I was like five, six years old, and they would put me in a suit. And it, it's borderline, you know, child cruelty, but they were doing it <laughs> with a purpose in mind because I had a, a an entertainment streak in me, and I would do impressions. And I did a five minute bit as Howard Cosell interviewing Muhammad Ali and W.C. Fields and whoever else my father concocted for part of that act. And I would get up in front of these people and as a six-year-old wouldn't pause or think twice about what I was doing. And I do think that planted some seeds in me of, okay, I can do that. That's not that big a deal. I've seen my parents do it. I watched them every night performing for many years of my life. And that never seemed out of the ordinary for me. So I do think there is a mentality that comes with the performance aspect. Broadcasting to me comes down to the combination of preparation and performance. Are you prepared? Can you perform the material when necessary? It's not that much more intricate than that. Amen. You know, I really enjoyed this. I can't thank you enough. And just keep in mind, if anything ever happens to our boy Stamos, he can't show up and you need a spotter. If you need a spotter, I just want to let you know I'm available. Okay. I have a lot of time on my hands. I can, I can get anywhere in the country on a moment's notice. So I, I don't want you to forget the name Grant Napier when you need a little help as a, if you need a spotter. Okay. 
uh, I will never forget the, the name Grand Napier because <laughs> you're a close friend. That goes without saying. And secondly, anything you want to do, you would be good at. So if indeed that was a spot you were put in, I know you would crush it. And I know how, how big an NFL fan you are. And for all those years with the Raiders and in the Bay Area yep. and ultimately your true love, the New York Giants, I think there's progress. I think the question is going to be whether or not Daniel Jones is the real deal or not. To me, it, it's it's probably going to just come down to that. I'm right with you, 100%. You're a good man. I root for you. Uh, you're, you're such a treasure. Just keep up the great work. And again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's greatly appreciated. And the feeling is mutual, Grant, truly. And great to hear your voice and great to catch up with you. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Big news, Manscaped just released their new cologne scent to help you feel good and smell good all over and at all times. Hey, who knew smelling this good could feel this good too? Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. Join the movement for all your below-the-waist grooming needs. Now, everyone knows Manscaped has the perfect package 3.0 for all of your below-the-waist grooming needs. But they didn't stop there. Complete your grooming game with the new refined cologne signature scent by Manscaped. With the same signature scent that's in all Manscaped formulas, this cologne is a perfect complement to the collection. Light, approachable, and gentlemanly in all the right ways. Hey, think of it as your wingman for the night to keep you fresh and ready for anything. Calming and inviting, this signature scent introduces a light citrus burst. It is absolutely awesome. And the beautifully designed glass bottle makes a statement. And the manly scent is attractive to set the mood. Hey, be sure to check out the Perfect Package 3.0 with all the essentials for your below-the-waist grooming needs, including the Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer and crop formulations. Folks, this is awesome. All right? And now you can use the new Manscaped Refined Cologne to complete your set and smell great anytime, anywhere. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. Again, that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com, and use the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S. Look good, smell good, feel good with Manscaped. Time now for our Q&A, and all you need to do is go to crowdultra.com. Sign up, takes a minute. Maybe I'll answer your question right here on the podcast. Jackson says, hey, Grant, big fan of the show. In your opinion, has Curry or LeBron had a bigger impact on the NBA? It's LeBron James. LeBron James' impact on the NBA is humongous. Curry is right up on the list, but he's not ahead of LeBron. It's a very interesting question to think about, Jackson, but who's had a bigger impact on the NBA? Yeah, it's LeBron James. Alan wants to know, who is the hardest working athlete you were around? You, this is going to surprise you. Most of the athletes that I've been around are unbelievably hard workers, okay? Like they all have an incredible work ethic, and that's why they're in the big leagues. Because not only are they talented, but they work harder than anyone else. So I, I don't know if I could just pick one individual. Um, I love hearing stories of players that go to the practice facility at one or two in the morning to get extra work in. 
and you never really hear that much about those stories. But there are, I'll tell you, Ray Allen always comes to mind. Ray used to come in every single time the Kings were playing a Ray Allen team. He'd be there three hours before the game going through his full workout. You know, LeBron had a great pregame workout. Larry Bird, Michael Jordan. I mean, you don't become great at what you do without working hard. But, Allen, there's not just one individual. All right, Andre wants to know, are the Sixers and Jazz just going on runs or will they keep this up? I like both rosters. I really like what Utah is doing. Uh, And I did my rant on this yesterday. I don't know why the Jazz aren't getting more credit for what they're doing. What is it about the Jazz? Uh, They should be talked about all over the place. What they're doing is fascinating. Is it because they play in Salt Lake City? People go, gee, it's just Jazz. Or is it because they're overshadowed by the Lakers? I love the Jazz team. So will they keep it up? Well, they're probably not going to keep up the pace, but uh, you can't forecast injuries. But in in the, in what the Jazz are doing particularly, uh, I love it. Chris wants to know, was Rasheed Wallace more or less out of control than DeMarcus Cousins? Rasheed was a different out of control than DeMarcus. Rasheed was always uh, picking up technicals for arguing with the refs. DeMarcus, too, but... And again, I wasn't around the Portland Trailblazers, so I don't know. I never heard teammates bashing Rasheed Wallace. In other words, privately or publicly, Rasheed, by all accounts, was a tremendous teammate. And he brought that team to the brink of a championship. And they blew that lead uh, in the Western Conference Finals to the Lakers, both out of control, no doubt about it, in terms of their yelling and Technical fouls, I mean, they're, they're very similar to one another in that sense. Steve wants to know, do you think you'll ever call a game again? Yeah, I think I'll call a game again. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 61. Um, yeah, I hope so. I think so. We'll just see. We'll take it uh, one day at a time. Kevin wants to know, how do you feel about eSports? eSports is great. I know that my kids play it all the time. I'm not in the eSports. It's not really my generation, so to speak. But, you know, I did something for NBA 2K at the All-Star Game in New Orleans a couple of years ago and loved that. So, yeah, eSports is great. Uh, Listen, it's 2021, right? So, yeah, eSports is is awesome. Alex wants to know, will Bilicek ever make a comeback and get back to the Super Bowl? Assuming that he coaches for a while, I would say yes, because he's a phenomenal coach. So I will say Yes. Derek's question, what's your opinion on AAU and its influence on the NBA? Well, it has a tremendous influence on the NBA. It has, in my opinion, hurt the NBA because I don't like the way the AAU game is played, which turns into the NBA game. But that's the reality. That is the reality. What goes on in AAU transcends into what you see uh, in the NBA. Forrest wants to know, what do you think about Julius Randle's game? The guy's great. What he's doing Uh, in New York is incredible. Good for him. You know, good for him. Uh, I thought he was really good with the Lakers. Uh, Then he got traded and ends up with the Pels and then moves on. I I like Julius Randle. I think the guy is a solid, solid player, and he is clearly uh, getting the job done. Adam wants to know, what value does Blake Griffin have left to offer? Uh, The problem I see with Blake Griffin is the guy is always hurt, and I don't think you can count on him. I don't think you can count on him. Mike wants to know, is MLB spring training having fans a good sign for having fans in a regular season? No. 
I mean, the NBA, I think half the teams right now are starting to let some fans back in, you know, 1,000, 1,500. I don't think allowing 1,000 or 1,500 fans into, let's say, a baseball stadium in the regular season, I don't see what that does. I really don't. Now, if the numbers increase, then, yeah, it would be better. But, um, no, I, I don't think so. And I don't know what the fans in spring training games are are going to be like. I don't really know what that is going to look like. I haven't seen definitive numbers, obviously, whether it's Florida or Arizona. Hey, thanks. Just go to CrowdUltra.com, sign up. Maybe I'll answer your question right here on my podcast. It's time for Rant. Time for the rant brought to you by New Works Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing, New Works Plumbing is a full-service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. Their expert technicians are available 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. Now that football is over, I find myself going, what the hell am I going to watch now? All right? I I tried watching some college basketball games, and I got to tell you, the level of play in college just doesn't do it for me. It really doesn't. Then I look at NBA, and there's no fans at the games, and it's just so damn weird. But the reason why I'm bringing this up, we got spring training going on, right? And we're going to be watching baseball. And I don't know of any sport that has hurt more by no fans than baseball. Now, I just talked about this in my crowd ultra question about some fans in MLB and what that means for regular season games. Maybe I'm just getting too damn old and I don't appreciate it anymore, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to really get into baseball if the stadiums are empty or if there's even 1,000 or 2,000 fans. That's not going to make a difference. Of all the damn sports, because baseball is so freaking slow, all right? I like seeing the cut the cutaways to fans or you know break up the damn monotony of the game. All right. I don't know. Are you into baseball? I haven't heard anything about baseball this offseason. How quiet has been the baseball talk? Not nothing. I mean, absolutely. Like you don't even know the freaking spring training is starting. I, I'm, I don't know what the future for this summer has in store for fans in Major League Baseball. So it, this is kind of a rant and I'm kind of reaching out to you. How do you feel about it? All right, because once football is done, I find myself going, gee, what the hell am I going to do now? You know, the NCAA tournament's coming up in a few weeks in a bubble in Indianapolis. All right, how, how odd is that going to be? Plus, I think the quality of college basketball, it's just not very good. I, I, I just, it's not very good. All right, and now I got to watch baseball. Thank God that the Masters is coming up in, what, six or seven weeks. You know, at least I can look forward to four days of that. I don't care whether fans are at Augusta or not. But baseball, if the stadiums are going to be basically empty, I don't think I'm going to be able to get into it. I really don't. I want to know what you have to say about that. Reach out to me on Twitter, at Grant Napier Show. Uh, reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, whatever the case may be. Are you going to what, – what's your, what's your mood like as we're heading towards March and baseball? Do you care? Do the fact that there are going to be very few fans of games make a difference to you like it does to me? Let me know. Hit me up on Twitter at Grant Napier Show. And that is my rant for today. I want to thank Ian Eagle again. What a phenomenal conversation with Ian. He is just great. Just signed a new deal with CBS. He is a class act and really enjoyed having him on the show. Hey, folks, make it a great weekend. Don't forget George Carl's coming on the show on Tuesday. And thank you so much for following me right here. If you don't like that 
with Grant Napier.